Well, I want to tell you just a a little story that happened to me this last summer, and maybe uh, you'll be able to see a little bit of yourself or your own experiences in it. Uh, Last summer, I was out just in the alley behind our house, and I was minding my own business. I think I was probably washing the car or something like that, and I spotted them. They were slightly overdressed for a Saturday afternoon. Uh, wandering through the neighborhood with a large stack of what appeared to be magazines in their hands, and they spotted me. And so they were going to come and make a beeline directly for me. And I was washing the car, and so I was kind of pretending that I was pretty busy, avoiding eye contact over here, nothing to see. And um, they came closer, and they made their opening comments. They said, what a wonderful day it is, isn't it? And I said, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a wonderful day. Yeah, love it. (laughs) Uh, I was clear in my body language that I was not really interested in a conversation, but they persisted. Don't you think that all of this beauty that we see around us has to come from somewhere? Maybe there's something or someone behind it, they said. And I mumbled something about, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's God. And they seized upon this immediately. Oh, you believe in God, do you? I said, well, I sure hope so. I'm a pastor. (laughs) So that usually shuts the conversation down fairly quickly, uh, but not immediately. These women, bless their hearts, they were doggedly persistent. Well, they said, we're here in your neighborhood telling people about God who created all of these wonderful things we see around us for us to enjoy. And I said, yep, that's great. Love it. Uh, And they said, we'd just like to leave you with this uh, magazine And then they spotted another person further up, and they're like, well, this guy's a pastor. Let's go see if we can talk to these other people who will maybe engage with us a little bit more. And so they bid me good day, and they were off. And so I stood there in my alley with a copy of the Watchtower magazine in my hand, and then I went back to washing my car. And I don't know about you, but I'm never 100% sure what to do when Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door. Because I'm not sure if we're going to have a genuine interaction and dialogue, like a conversation, or whether for them it's most important that they get the Watchtower magazine into my hands. And if it's a genuine dialogue, then that's great. I'm okay to engage in that. Sometimes I get the impression that they want me to like really like slam the door in their face so they can go back and talk to other people about how they're being persecuted for righteousness' sake in this neighborhood. Uh, we had one, one time, stop by the office and try and witness to all of us. <laughs> we're like, you know this is a church office, right? Like, <laughs> but they were persistent. Um, and it can get a little bit weird. And especially it can get weird when you tell them that you're a Christian, or you go to church somewhere, or you're a pastor. Um, and sometimes, I mean, if you take the Watchtower magazine and you leaf through it, and you look Uh, This particular issue was about creation, and there's lots of good stuff in it, like articles about how God's made the world for us to enjoy, and all of, uh, there's sometimes articles about having a good family and all that kind of stuff. Um, But it usually ends up in these conversations going off the rails or getting into areas of significant disagreement where we just can't kind of keep a genuine conversation going around usually one issue. And I'm not sure if you've ever had a chance to probe into what Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the 8.5 million or so of them around the globe, including the Kingdom Hall in Willoughby, uh, what they believe, but they're big on 
um, the millennium. They're big on uh, millennarian restorationist non-Trinitarianism would be what they're big on, which is some fancy words to say they, they would like to identify themselves as Christians, but the major difference between historic Orthodox global Christianity and Jehovah's Witnesses is that Jehovah's Witnesses will not agree that Jesus is God. They believe that because um, the, the Bible uses language of Jesus as God's son, that Jesus then must be a created being. He might be the most important created being, might be the highest created being, like an archangel Michael, uh, but, so he's powerful but, and important, but certainly not in their belief system God, not the second person of the Trinity. And so that would put them outside of the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. And today we're going to look at the, what the New Testament teaches us about Jesus and about Christ. And uh, we'll also learn how to have a positive discussion with Jehovah's Witnesses should they come and choose to engage in a charitable conversation about issues of faith with you. So we're just um, in the starting points of a teaching series in the book of Colossians. Uh, and the teaching series is called Greater Than. And that's because th again and again in the book of Colossians, Paul, writing under the influence uh, of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, keeps saying that Christ is greater than, and then he'll fill in the blanks. Christ is greater than all of the other things that we might face, the challenges we might face uh, in our lives. So last week we talked about how Christ is greater than our past because Jesus has the authority to break the bondage of sin and death in our lives. And we talked about how Christ is greater than legalism and how just keeping a bunch of rules won't get you into right standing with God. And today we're going to look at just three short verses. And in these three short verses, they pack a massive punch theologically. Uh, and so in just three verses, we're going to see a Christian theology of creation. We're going to sing, uh, see a theology of the Trinity and who Jesus is. And we're going to see Christology, the focus on the person and the work of Christ that is distinct and unique uh, from what Jehovah's Witnesses preach when they come to your door. So it's a lot to pack into three verses. So if you've got your Bibles or on your devices, open up to the book of Colossians, and we'll look at chapter 1. Uh, we'll start reading in verse 15. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Colossians 1.15 says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before Anything was created, and he is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together. Now, if you look in your Bible, one of the first things you might notice is that this text, these verses are offset uh, in the type in different way from the rest of Colossians. And one of the things that we do know about these verses is that this is Paul quoting or reflecting out to us one of the earliest first century hymns 
or songs or poems that was in existence in the early church. And these songs or these poems that they wrote were an effort to try and help distill core Christian doctrine and teaching for people who maybe couldn't read or write and be able to then remember what is Christianity all about. And so this hymn or this song is designed to answer some core questions like what is God like? Who is Jesus? What do we believe about the created world? And so the first thing that we see in these verses is really laid out for us a Christian theology of creation. So the Bible teaches us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And lots and lots of speculation and arguments have existed all through history about when God created, how long it took God to create all that exists. But that's slightly beyond the scope of this message and this passage for this afternoon. Um, we did do a few years ago a series on the book of Genesis, uh, and, uh, and we spent a lot of time talking about that. So you can go back into the sermon archives and have a listen if that's something of interest or curiosity to you. Uh, but for now, I just want to illustrate this by drawing this out for us, and just so we can kind of get a picture of what Paul's argument is here. And then this is something that I want you to pay attention to because this is something helpful that you might be able to also draw out uh, and have a productive conversation with someone who comes to your door. So, um, the Bible says that uh, if we made a big square, it's probably going to be more like a rectangle by the time I get done with it. <clears throat> but if this, inside this box, is everything that exists... So then, we have underneath this notion of everything that exists, we have two categories underneath here. So we'll split the box in half. So the first category we have is all things that never came into being. And then, in the second box, we have pretty much everything else. So, Colossians 1.15 says that Christ existed before anything was created. So, the only thing in the universe that exists that never came into being is God. Everything else has a timestamp on it at some point. Everything else came into being at some point. So therefore, God is the only thing that exists in all of the universe that never came into being. We would say that God is uncreated. No one thought up or created God. God has always existed and will always exist. John uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, speaking of Christ as the eternal, uncreated Word of God, says this, in the beginning, the Word, that being Christ, already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, 
and nothing was created except through him. So, Christ, God, Father, Son, and Spirit never came into being. Christ has always existed and always will exist. But we also see that God created everything that exists, seen and unseen. So back over to the easel here, we've got everything that exists, and then we've got all of the things that never came into being, and the only other category is all things that came into being. At some point in time, and Colossians 1 teaches us that everything that exists, we have God never came into being, the divine first mover, and then in the all things that came into being box, we would write all created things. You guys are getting a great taste of my handwriting. Just think of the staff who have to live with it all the time. But um, the scriptures are clear that God created all that exists seen and unseen, which means that creation is not God. It's beautiful, it's valuable, it's precious, but it's not to be worshipped. So another way to say this is that creation is not divine, but it is good. God declared it in Genesis chapter 1 as good. And you might remember last weekend uh, when we were talking about what were the things that these people that were receiving this letter uh, from Paul what are the stuff that they believed? They were really into worshiping all kinds of stuff. They worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars because they believed that if, like many people still in, in many parts of the earth today, they believed that if they could sort of somehow um, placate or do enough offerings or good things or good deeds that they could control their destiny and maybe that, that the universe would kind of then um, return to them some kind of, of, of justice or return on their investment. And so people in Colossae uh, worshipped animals. They worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. And so when Paul writes to them, he's correcting this and saying to them, listen, when you're doing that, those are things that are not supposed to be worshipped. They have intricacy and beauty but that comes from the fact that God created them and gave them that beauty and the glory of creation. But those things are not God. And so we shouldn't worship them in the same way. They ought to point us back to the creator. Psalm 19 is one place that gives us just a beautiful picture of this in poetic language in the Hebrew Testament and just saying that creation just is declaring night after night the stars are just declaring the goodness of God. Day after day, when we look outside, especially in our part of the world, we just are confronted again and again with the majesty and beauty of creation. And it ought to point us back to a creator. And then Paul says something which would have, to this group of people he's writing to, seemed so radical and so weird uh, that, that he would have had to, he spends a lot of the rest of the time in the book of Colossians detailing it. He says to them, you know what? God cared so much about the world and creation and you that he chose to enter into creation in the person of Jesus and undo or reverse the damage done by sin and separation. 
So the uncreated creator of all that exists, of heaven and earth, things seen and unseen, in the language of Philippians 2, gives up divine privilege and becomes a human being and takes on our sin on the cross. Philippians 2, 6 says, though he, Christ, was God. So again, a clear declaration, Christ is God. He appeared in human form and died a criminal's death on the cross. And so creation and redemption, creation and new creation are both accomplished by the same agent, Christ. And so the New Testament just makes this point over and over and over again, that Christ is God. Jesus is God. God and Christ not only created and sustains all that exists, but Christ also willingly gave himself up so that he could redeem and rescue all of creation. And so the implications of this are massive because the worldview that most people that worship created things instead of a creator have uh, and that exists in a lot of places today is that, well, things that are spiritual are good, but things that are material, so created order, uh, that stuff's not really good. So the, the really goal is to talk about the really good stuff, the spiritual stuff, and all of that creation business and the created world and universe, that'll just all, I don't know, burn up in the end, won't it? And so by entering, by choosing to enter in to the created universe, Christ enters and takes on a physical body. It's a massive, massive message to us that the created world is good and that Things like our bodies and creation matters. And we're not to think of it in dualistic terms. We need to be careful. And uh, throughout this message, we'll talk about just watching our language carefully. We're not to worship things that are created, but we're to understand that they point us to something more. And so I think one of the practices that's helpful for us is when we speak about nature, when we speak about all that's around us, practice speaking of it not as nature or the environment, but actually as creation. And what that does is it reminds us that this is a gift that we have from a creator. And it reminds us again of the creator's love and care for us. Our First Nations brothers and sisters are way ahead of us as white people when it comes to this type of thinking and theology. They have a very deep respect for the way in which the Creator has given and invites us into that relationship. The, some of the hymns that we sang today even, or other old hymns like, This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. And so a Christian theology of creation always involves a creator. It involves Christ creating everything, coming to earth, making visible in the person of Jesus the invisible creator. And that's just the start of what is being taught here in this text. So the second thing that we see, that's the first thing, a Christian theology of creation. The second thing we see is a, a theology of the Trinity, that Christian theology is Trinitarian. Well, as Christians, what do we mean by this? We we, when we say the language of the Trinity, 
what we mean is we confess God as one being in three persons. And this is one of the most challenging concepts for us to get our minds around as humans. Uh, Jenna walked into my office last month and she said, um, Brad, I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with an adequate illustration uh, or metaphor to explain the Trinity to the kids. And I said, join the club. I'm having trouble doing it with the adults. <laughs> and it's just a tricky thing for us to wrap our brains around. And there's all kinds of cutesy little ways, you know, that eggs and clovers and all kinds of other, you know, uh, uh, physical um, metaphors and expressions, but they still have a difficult time really capturing what's going on and explaining it to ourselves and others. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, if you are having a discussion on your doorstep, one of the things that your JW friend will say is, well, the word Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible, which is true. It's not ever mentioned in the Bible. But there's lots of things that are not mentioned in the Bible, words that we don't find in the Bible that are clearly taught in the Bible. And so the language of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, is taught throughout the New Testament and is uh, oftentimes used interchangeably in the same passage. So we just keep reading and we almost don't even notice it. But instead of a particularly long discussion of what the Trinity is, it's actually probably more important to understand what the Trinity is not. What we are not saying as Christians when we say we believe in God as one being in three persons. So one thing that we're not saying is we're not saying that we worship three gods, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so separated from each other that they have no connectivity whatsoever, that they're completely separated. Uh, yes, they are distinct in personhood, but not so distinct that they are different deities. And the other thing it doesn't mean when we talk about the Trinity is that we're not talking about just different modes of God's self-revelation or expression. So when we talk about God the Father, we mean the big bad person in the sky who's going to zap those who disobey. When we talk about Jesus, we're clearly talking about God's love. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God's power. Uh, there's strains of uh, Pentecostalism that would uh, fall into that kind of language and teach this. And to be fair, it is, it is sometimes easier to go there in our thinking but while distinct, we also need to maintain the essential unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, because Christian theology is always Trinitarian. So one of the things that I think we get trapped up in here, let's do a little excursus about language again. When we use language like Father and Son, it actually contributes to some of the problems because we have categories in our minds for Father and and son, and it gives us a slightly skewed impression of God's nature. And so I think it's important to remind ourselves that God is neither male nor female. And so though male pronouns are used for God in the Bible, really this is a reflection of human, the limitation of human language rather than the notion that God is gendered in some way. Because when God creates human beings, in God's image, God says, male and female reflect 
the image of God. And a lot of times we skip over the passages or we don't notice the ones in the scriptures that teach us more about things like how God comforts us like a mother or um, loves and cares for us compassionately like a mother. But neither of those things mean that God is male or female. Scripture just simply says God is a spirit. And so those that worship God must recognize and approach and worship God in spirit and in truth. And so though the metaphors that we use to refer to God, a lot of them come out of cultures where the masculine pronoun was the dominant pronoun. So, but metaphors that refer to God as king or father or husband no more make God into a male sexual being than references to feathers in Psalm 91 verse 4 make God into a bird. That's from our Mennonite Brethren Confession of Faith and Pastoral Application. And this is hard for us to wrestle with, but it's an important thing for us to acknowledge in this conversation. And I think particularly for those of you who have been wounded by men or had a challenging relationship with a father, and thus when you, f- when you hear God referred to as he or father, that can create a barrier for you in relationship. And my prayer for you today is that you recognize that this is a language issue. And sometimes language can and has been weaponized. But if it's a language issue, it's not an essential issue of God's identity and God's essence and how God wants to relate to you. And so if that's a journey that you need to keep walking out, it's a hard one. But we need to keep this tension alive in our minds Neither Ariana Grande with her song, God is a Woman, or patriarchy with its tradition of referring to God as a man have it right. God is neither male nor female. So we would do well to watch our language on this one. So back to our drawing for a moment and our conversation with a Jehovah's Witness at your front door. So once you've drawn, you could draw the square out and then you would ask them, so where would you put Jesus in this drawing? And their, their reflex, their, their go-to will be to put Jesus here because that's what they've been taught. Um, if you look, for example, in, uh, they have their uh, own translation of the Bible and uh, it, it actually uses very different language in John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning the word was, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. So very different than uh, John chapter 1 reads. Uh, And then, for example, if you look in the New International Version, that translation of Colossians 1, it uses the language of Christ as the firstborn of all of creation. And so they'll take an NIV Bible and say to you, look, If he's the firstborn of all creation, firstborn sonship, that means that God the Father created Jesus as kind of the first thing that he did in all of creation, and then Jesus created everything else. And rather than getting into a bunch of arguments with your JW friend over Greek words and tenses and translation errors and manuscripts, that's not going to be super helpful and you'll be there for hours. 
just know that this argument has been going on for a really, really, really long time in history. See, way back in the fourth century, the early Christian movement was spreading uh, all through the Roman world and the ancient world. And there were some pretty crazy ideas that got lots of traction in the first several centuries of the Christian movement. And so the early Christian movement had disagreements about all kinds of stuff. And some of which we see right in the pages of the New Testament itself. We see, for example, a disagreement um, over how to incorporate Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians into God's new family. Should they have to keep the Jewish laws? Should they observe the Sabbath? All that kind of stuff. And so they have tension around these things. And one of the disagreements that, that was incredibly divisive in the early church was the question of, who is Jesus? What is Jesus. And one particular agreement that got real strong in the fourth century uh, came from a person called Arius. And Arius was a bishop in the city of Alexandria. And Arius uh, really, really, really grew up in a context where his family worshipped multiple gods. And so when he came to saving faith, he said, you know what, we really need to combat this sort of worship of multiple gods, this polytheistic business. So we need to emphasize God's oneness. And every time the Trinity came up, Father, Son, and Spirit, he just said, ah, oh, this is too confusing for people because they think that they're, now they're worshiping three gods. Let's just keep it real simple for everybody. The Father then created the Son, using the language again, he was fond of the language of firstborn of all creation. And then Jesus created everything else through the power of the Spirit was what he believed. And Arius said, if God is not dependent on anything or anyone else for God's existence, the Father cannot be dependent on the Son. They must be of different substance or essence. The Father must be the creator, and the Son must be a created being. And so he came to this conclusion that Jesus was created by God and then employed the power of God the Spirit for the creation of all that is. It's actually the exact same thing that Jehovah's Witnesses believe and teach. Um, this is a, a picture uh, from an ancient document of St. Nicholas. And St. Nicholas is slapping Arius across the face because he's like, dude, get it together. You're teaching heresy. So you never knew that in some of the most ancient Christian art that we have in existence, it's like a meme, right? That like Christian art is really, uh, there's a couple good memes. This has prompted a few other ones. These are two of my favorites. This was a warning, Arius. The next time my hand flies on its own, where I come from, there are penalties for heresy. That's St. Nicholas. And then St. Nicholas again, Arius is saying, Christ is not divine. He was created by heresy. But here's the fundamental problem with that theology of believing that Jesus is not God. See, if Jesus is not God, if Jesus is just one among many God-like options available to be worshipped, demi or semi-gods, it really does open the door and allow for the worship of anything, anything that's been created. Polytheism is fair game if that is what you believe. And it fundamentally undermines the Old Testament's conviction and teaching that Christian tradition picked up on and further developed to say, here, O Israel, the Lord is one. 
You will have no other gods beside or before me. Remember, the Colossian Christians grew up in this context where they worshipped all kinds of gods. They were forced to worship the emperor. They were forced to worship nature. They chose to worship nature. Uh, They worshipped empire. They worshipped power. They worshipped greed. They worshipped sexual liberty, freedom to do whatever they wanted. All of those were touted as worthy of just giving yourself to and worshipping in whatever way you wanted to. And so if Jesus just is one of many really great options for you to choose from, then Jesus' uniqueness as the creator disappears and he becomes just a really nice guy. Maybe a good model for human ethics. Maybe uh, something that we would like to follow if you're into that kind of thing. But Jesus then just becomes another created human being. And that undermines another massive piece of Christian theology, and that is the redemption of all things. Because when Philippians says that God himself came into our world to redeem fallen humanity, that's because no created human being could do it themselves. Nothing and no one except for God choosing to rip apart that barrier that existed is the way in which redemption happened. If Jesus is only a human being and not God, Jesus has no right or authority to make claims of redemption. He has no right or authority to make claims that he died to take away the sins of the world by his life, death, and resurrection. And that is not a small and insignificant shift. That is actually, and I do not use this word a lot, but that is heresy. Because the biblical claim, central to the biblical claim, is that Jesus is God. That yes, Jesus came to show us in the language of Colossians 1.15, the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus came to show us what God was like. Jesus is, uh, in the language of Colossians 1.20, the unique Savior of the world. Through God, through Christ, God reconciled to himself everything and made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Jesus' blood on the cross. Jesus is the unique Savior of the world. And Jesus is the Lord of the church and the cosmos. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning. He's supreme over all. He is first in everything. And Pastor Wally's going to pick up on this theme next week and teach out the rest of this ancient hymn. But if your JW friend is tempted to put Jesus in this box as another created being, take them to John chapter 1, verse 3. And here's how Greg Cool in his book, Stand to Reason, explains this. So if you have a JW friend on your, on your doorstep, you draw this out and you ask them where they put Jesus, and they want to put Jesus here, you say, hold on, friend. Let's just read out loud, and you can use the New World Translation for this. Let's read out loud John chapter 1, verse 3. And it says this in, in their translation, apart from him, so still talking about Christ, not even one thing came into 
existence. So in other words, John is saying the same thing two different ways for emphasis and clarity. Everything that came into existence, everything that came into being owes its existence to Jesus, which they'll give you that and say, yeah, yeah, that's fine, cause it all to happen. But if Jesus caused and created all things to come into existence, he must have existed before all created things were created. In other words, if Jesus created everything that has come into being, and Jesus also came into being as they contend, then Jesus created himself. And he would have had to exist as creator before he existed as a created thing, which is absurd. Therefore, Jesus can't be placed into the box all things that came into being. There's only one place to place Jesus, and that is into this box, that Jesus is God. But let's go back to our friend Arius and how this discussion turned out. Well, it was one of the biggest fights in the early Christian church, and it was so bad that the emperor of that time, Constantine, decided to pay for all of the church leaders from all of the ancient world to gather for a council meeting where they were going to talk this out. And in uh, 325, in the city of Nicaea, they gathered and they hammered out this doctrine, uh, which we still have uh, existent fragments of this that we can see from history. And they outlined a document that said, Jesus is God. And the debate continued to rage for about a half century after that, to the point where they actually had to call another ecumenical council, get everybody together again, and finally settle the matter. And at that council, they wrote out a statement that we actually still use to this day. It's called the Nicene Creed. And it outlines the core convictions of Orthodox global historic Christianity as it relates to the substance and essence and work of God. And the worship team's gonna come and we're gonna move into uh, a time of response in song. And just before they do that, I wanna ask us to think about the implications of Jesus as God. See, friend, what we believe about Jesus matters. Because if Jesus is God, then Jesus' claims about reality are true. He can't just be a good moral teacher because Jesus claimed to be God. And so those two things can't exist. He can't be a good moral teacher if he's telling lies all the time about who he is. And Colossians teaches us that not only did Christ Jesus create, but he also sustains and holds all things together. And so my question for you would be, what in your life feels like it's falling apart right now? Take it to Jesus. That's why we have these response times afterwards. Because if Jesus is the sustainer of all that exists, his desire is to sustain you. The healer, the God of the universe who loves you, wants to enter into a sustaining relationship with you. Jesus also possesses ultimate authority over all that exists, seen and unseen. And so the question is, what are you facing in your life right now 
that seems just insurmountable. It just seems greater than anything else you could imagine. Maybe it's temptation that you can't kick to the curb. It just keeps coming up in your life again and again and again. Uh, maybe it's a challenge financially or relationally in your life that every time you think about it, just oppressive fear cripples your heart. If Christ has ultimate authority over all that exists, seen and unseen, he has authority over that thing. And this means that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we're going to close our time together this afternoon with two songs of worship. And I want to invite you to stand with me. Our prayer team has made their way to the back. And we're going to make a public declaration of truth. And this is an ancient declaration. Uh, it's been uttered by the church for 1,693 years and counting. It's been tested and tried and recited by millions of people all around the globe already today. And so what we do here when we do something like this is simply join our voices with countless millions of others, the saints of ages past and the global community of faith declaring what we know to be true as expressed in this. Let's recite it together and then we'll sing. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father with the Father and the Son. He is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.